the practice of herbalism and the practice of astrology are both inherently supported and nourished by intellectual foundations and embodied experience. Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 55, Astro Herbalism with Sarah Corbett. In this episode, we speak with Sarah about astrology, herbalism, and how they go together about cultivating relationships with plants and planets by understanding their shared connections. We explore temperaments, medical astrology, and re-enchanting the world. We also get into some specific planetary and plant correspondences, which is really interesting. And Sarah shows us how simple and easy and practical astrology and herbalism can be, even though they can also be very complicated. As always, we'd like to thank our patrons and supporters. And if you like this podcast and want to see us thrive, you can head over to patreon.com slash plantcunning and sign up. Uh, this is one of those episodes where uh, we have the first hour for free, and the second hour is up on the Patreon for uh, our patrons of $9 and above. Um, if you like this episode, then you'll probably want to listen to the second hour because we get really in-depth into a lot of those planetary correspondences, which are so much fun. We really dive deep into some of our favorite plants like yarrow and elecampane and hawthorn. But you don't have to sign up for Patreon to help support the podcast. You can also rate and give us reviews on iTunes. You can share these episodes with your friends who you think might enjoy them. And uh, you can just keep listening. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So we are super excited to have Sarah Corbett on the show today. Uh, she's an astro herbalist and nutritionist and educator. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah. So um, we're excited to dive into all things herbalism and astrology. But our first traditional question is, how did you come to the plant path? Yeah, so I've always kind of been around plants. I grew up on four acres of, I, I hate to say like the word pristine, because there's no really such thing as wild nature, but an area where there was still a very intact bioregional ecosystem, um, just in the middle of the forest with all of these beautiful woodland medicinals that we find throughout Southern Appalachia. So I spent a lot of my time growing up with plants and then my family always kept a garden. So like being around plants, being with plants, working with plants throughout the year was really important to my family growing up, but I didn't really get into like the study and practice of herbalism when we're thinking about the medicinal and therapeutic qualities of plants until I experienced chronic illness, like so many other herbalists, you know, many of us have this story where we got sick, the plants helped us heal. And now we're perpetually in adoration and devotion to them. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was, you know, between like 15 and 16, I started getting really, really sick, eventually found out I had celiac disease and it was actually a Chinese herbalist and acupuncturist uh, naturopath who helped me 
essentially get back to uh, a place where I could function <laughs> like a moderately normal human being with the help of herbs. And a lot of the herbs he had in my formulas, we had similar plants here, maybe like a different species of this Chinese plant growing where I was at. And so I was able to connect with the plants that I was working with. And that really just set me on like a lifelong journey of wanting to learn as much as I possibly could about herbalism. It also helped me realize that like, oh, I could do this for a living. You know, I'd never heard of someone who worked with herbs professionally and seeing this practitioner, I was like, wow, okay, this is what I want to do. Very cool. Wow. So do you uh, recall a specific plant that you first got to know in your teens that, that left an impact? Yeah, I would have to say, you know, growing up in those woods, like as a child, the plants that were always kind of calling me towards them were tulip poplars and trillium. We had like three or four different species of trillium um, at my childhood home. So every spring I'm just laying on the ground, you know, staring at these sweet little flowers um, and bloodroot. Those were plants that always got me really curious as a kid. And then the plant that actually essentially healed me was just humble plantain. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. There was psyllium in one of my formulas. And then when I realized that this weed just grows in my backyard, I was like, oh, okay, I can make my own teas. Yeah. Started hanging out with plantain a lot. Then jewel weed started calling to me from the edges of like creek sides. And, mm. um, you know, I really just felt really connected with our local bioregional plants and with a lot of like naturalized sort of invasives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting also that, you know, it's, it was like a great thing for you to like find your passion and your, you know, direction that early, but it's also like definitely probably hard and difficult to go through that, you know, uncertainty and all that pain. Um, but it's, it's also interesting that it was caused by a plant, you know, like wheat <laughs> is a plant. Yeah. Well, and you know, my dad has celiac, but he wasn't diagnosed. So mm -hmm. it took me getting sick, you know, autoimmune disease, which is what celiac is. They don't just happen. You know, there has to be a genetic component and an environmental trigger. And my environmental trigger was I had H1N1 and mono in the same year. So I, yeah, I got the last pandemic, you know, and it was really brutal. And um, it just created a cascade of events in my body uh, coupled with a variety of other factors at the time, you know, like I imagine being a teenager and having changing hormones and things was impacting that as well. Um, but it was a big shock to just all of a sudden be able to not tolerate foods that I had always eaten growing up and I had never had a problem with. And then it was equally shocking um, to find such a simple, humble plant that offers so much generous aid for the area of my body that was struggling the most, you know, plantains work on the digestive system was just so crucial for my healing journey. But yeah, it was definitely really painful. And on one hand, I'm really glad that I found my path early in life because I've been able to really cultivate a career for myself in herbalism, um, at a very young age, but it was brutal. It was like six years of just major illness. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah. yeah. So when you started to, um, you know, see the wonder and power of herbs and wanted to study it more, did you find certain teachers or books or were um, the plants themselves kind of teachers for you? 
So the plants themselves were definitely teachers for me first. And then my first foray into actually learning about medicinal plants outside of like plantain and jewelweed and a couple of other friends around my home was, I was foraging for mushrooms. Um, this one summer, we ended up having like a really beautiful, mild and damp summer and the chanterelles and bolides were just going wild in the woods. And so I'd finally regained some strength um, to get out and start spending more time in nature for like multiple hours at a time. And I would just hike all over the place and take a field guide with me and learn about these mushrooms and um, learn about culinary herbalism was kind of my first entry point at that age. So I was gathering books. I was reading a lot of articles online. I'm, I took like an, an online intro class to herbalism to learn about, you know, energetics and things like that. Um, but I didn't really formally dedicate myself to concentrated herbal study until I was about midway through college, where I was in, I was at Georgia State University in their dietetics program. So I was studying to become a registered dietitian. I was having a lot of issues with the program because it was very diet culture focused. And I had just gone through this whole, you know, medically intense situation around diet. So it was really hard for me to be in that environment. And I just found so much solace sitting in the library, browsing some of these old herbals. Like they had, you know, the King's Dispensatory and um, some physiomedicalist texts and these like a modern herbal by Maud Grieve and all of these really beautiful herbarium like texts in the library and I would just spend all my free time there reading these old books. Interesting. So you kind of rejected the the knowledge that you were getting at university on nutrition and, and dietary needs, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Well, so the way that modern nutrition education is set up is, you know, you learn the foundations of nutrition. Like everyone needs certain things to be alive in a human body. We all have similar needs, but there was a lack of understanding of bioindividuality in my dietetics program. So yeah. they had us really focused on like calculating calorie requirements and doing a lot of nutrition stuff that's honestly very outdated. Um, and I've seen in clinical practice to be very harmful for people. So it's then this is just a product of the Western medical nutrition paradigm. Um, so at that time, I was just like, you know, this isn't working for me. I remember I went to the dean's office of my school and they were asking me about my professional goals. I had to do this like interview thing for the next phase of my program. And I told them that I really wanted to go to Bastyr and become a naturopath. And he laughed in my face. Ugh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and just said to me like, well, we don't believe in pseudoscience. And I was like, great. I'll take a change of major form. Yeah. That oh was my gosh. <laughs> rude. So I ended up leaving the dietetics program, which I'm so glad I did. Um, you know, I've pursued my nutrition studies elsewhere, but I ended up getting a bachelor's of psychology, bachelor's of science in psychology, which was very not psychological, but much, much more focused on like, um, understanding research design and understanding how to do good research and find good research but I was like one credit short of a pre-med degree. So I literally just took all of the um, major sciences at my college, which ended up being really good for me later as an herbalist. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to research is something that we don't really get in modern herbalist training so much, you know? Oh, and we need it so bad because there's so much, especially with so much herb resources being on the internet, there's so much conflicting information 
so much to sort through. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what, um, what herbalists did you study with, uh, after that? So some of my most influential teachers have been Clara Bailey, who is a naturopath in Australia. And I did some professional mentorship with her for um, Mm. almost like two years. So she supervised all my cases and she's a very strong, strongly rooted herbalist in the vitalist tradition. So I got a lot of my training with her and then Claire Gallagher, who's a brilliant acupuncturist, nutritionist, um, intuitive eating counselor and traditional astrologer and medical astrologer. So I learned a lot of astrological stuff from her. The primary educational programs that I've completed are with Sage Popham, who also is just brilliant in the world of astroherbalism. And then I really love Paul Bergner's work and Dr. Aviva Rome's work. Um, I'm always taking an, an herbal program or some type of <laughs> continual education program. Yep. So I've learned from a lot of different people, but those are definitely the folks that I feel like have really shaped the way in which I approach and view herbalism today. Mm. Um, But I also really lean on like lineage teachers from history. You know, my favorite books are, you know, even seen as canon of medicine. And I'm constantly reading about the herbal traditions of my family and my ancestors from Central Asia and Iran and throughout the Swana region. Um, so I lean a lot on like, you know, our historical ancestral teachers as well. So cool. I, I love hearing about different people's influences and teachers, because if you know a little bit about those teachers and you can really get a picture of, Mm -hmm. you know, the person. So that's really cool to hear. And so I guess this brings us to, um, defining what astro herbalism is. So if you could just give us, um, a little insight on what, astro herbalism is and what it means to be an astro herbalist. Yeah. So I think different folks who engage with astrology and herbalism together will probably define this a little bit differently, but Mm -hmm. kind of the working definition that I operate from is understanding that astrological herbalism is essentially just the practice of engaging with the inherent connections that exist between our earthly, you know, plant kin, trees, friends here, and the celestial the celestial, including planets, but also like fixed stars and other celestial objects or beings. I, I don't want to objectify them. We'll call them beings. Yeah. <laughs> Much greater be- beings than us in a certain way. Right. Like the planets are, I see them as exceptionally large spirits. Yeah. Um, but so astro herbalism, you know, some people are working with astro herbalism as a way to understand how to best, like how to create the best possible recommendation for the person sitting in front of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is very much how, you know, my teacher Sage teaches. He is really all about using astrological herbalism as a way to create more effective remedies, um, to create more effective protocols and to really get at the root of what someone's going through and address like the whole person, you know, um, from a physical perspective, but also a spiritual perspective as well. So his perception on astro herbalism has definitely influenced mine, but I have taken it into a slightly different direction in my own work. I am less focused on, um, saying, well, this person has the sun in Aries, so we're going to give them this type of plant for that or something. My perspective on astro herbalism is much more rooted in cultivating relationships with plants and planets by understanding their shared connections. Mm. Mm. So what does that look like? 
Yeah, I mean, so when you understand like planetary virtues, right, you know, when you understand that the moon, for example, facilitates and feels and governs cycles and offers nourishment, but also like sedates and soothes, you can start to see the moon show up in plants that do those things as well. So when I want to learn about nourishment and I want to learn about how to embody lunar nourishment, as an example, I might go hang out with lunar plants like chickweed or milky oats um, and learn what it means to embody that type of virtue and that type of experience. So in my framework of astral herbalism, it becomes more about truly embodying these planetary virtues and learning about planets through their emblematic plants. It's also really lovely just to walk around and be like, oh, hi, roses. It's nice to see you, Venus. Or, hey, Calendula, you're looking very radiant and solar today. So you're kind of, you know, seeing the planets existing in our terrestrial experience, which is a pretty fundamental thing to astrology, right? Like astrology is just the practice of seeing how celestial objects are like affecting our experience here on earth. So one of the most fundamental, fundamental aspects of astrology is seeing the planets in the world that we live in. And so I just see them in plants. Yeah. yeah. Well, it also seems like astrology is this wonderful framework that so much can fit in. And like, when you really start studying astrology, so much of these di- disparate elements like in magic and herbalism and all various things like they suddenly kind of coalesce and and are integrated and make sense together yeah and definitely if you're reading from things that were coming out of like the hellenistic era of our world so the astrology that a lot of people practice today you know we have like the modern astrological revival which is you know our evolutionary astrology and things like that, you know, a very different paradigm of astrology that really came out of the last like 150, 200 years. But the astrology that I'm really rooted in is traditional astrology. You'll hear it called like traditional or ancient or classical Greek or Hellenistic astrology, but it's really an umbrella term that includes all sorts of different traditions from like the Hellenistic era, um, from Arabic astrology, medieval astrology, Renaissance astrology, Babylonian and Mesopotamian astrology. So traditional astrology really describes the techniques of like a very wide ranging lineage of practices from like 2000 BCE up until the 18th century. And then thanks to uh, folks like Project Hindsight and Chris Brennan and Robert Han and a variety of other Um, traditional astrologers, they've been really revitalizing the traditional astrology tradition for the last like 20, 30 years. And we've gotten access to a ton of astrological texts just in the last 15 years that we didn't have, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So we know more about traditional astrology now than we ever have. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty amazing. And all these texts getting translated and there's just so much available. And, but there's also like, like there's a big difference between, you know, astrology in England in the 16th and 17th centuries and, and Babylonia, Babylonia, uh, Babylon and Egypt in the Hellenistic period. Like they're all, they're very different um, systems too. I mean, they're all related, but like, are, uh, do you focus on one of those streams or one of those traditions or do you kind of just see it as a, a larger tradition? 
I see it as a larger tradition that has evolved and shared information together. You know, if we're thinking about like the Hellenistic time period, people will often hear Hellenistic and they just think of like Greek. Um, but it's really describing a like cultural era where all of these different people from different groups are co like coming together in Egypt and Alexandria and sharing so much knowledge with each other. So we know based on our understanding of traditional astrological texts as of, you know, in the last like 34 years, we know that, um, folks were sharing information with each other and that a lot of the astrological constructs that we're working with today was coming right out of that time period. So like the, the 12 zodiacal signs hasn't changed since then. And it came together from a shared, like shared knowledge, um, a shared transmission of knowledge. So while I'll pull from lots of different sources, you know, the tradition has really evolved and grown over the years, but there are some constants, you know, in a Western like Hellenistic astrological framework, we're all working with the same four elements. We're all working with the same energetic qualities. We're all working with the seven traditional planets. We can see how different astrologers have built different techniques over time to understand those things or to divine certain things or to calculate certain things. Um, but there's a pretty like consistent through line for the whole yeah. tradition. So then and you differentiate, you know, traditional astrology from like modern astrology, basically based on like the more materialistic perspective of modern astrology and maybe the focus on psychology and then um, maybe also like the outer planets. Yeah. So one of the things we have to understand about traditional astrology and the history of astrology is that at the time of like the so-called enlightenment and, you know, right. when, <laughs> <laughs> the enlightenment. Uh, you know, my friend Diana that I teach with refers to it as, as the so-called enlightenment. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. I'm going to take that. Um, but, you know, after we accepted that the universe was not geocentric and we start moving into this quote unquote enlightenment period, which is really like a fragmented fragmentization of all sacred like sacred um, traditions and spiritual traditions in Europe. Yeah. Um, which is super, I mean, it's awful and it sucks. And there was this move towards scientific materialism rather than just like scientific thinking to where we were no longer seeing things as sacred and no longer seeing spirituality in the world. So things got really kind of atheist um, or maybe not even like, uh, there wasn't even necessarily like a totally lack of belief in God, for example, but there was a very it was reduced. Yeah, it was it was reduced down, and there was only one type of acceptable religion at the time. Yeah. So all of these different spiritual frameworks that people had been working with, and a lot of spiritual framework frameworks that are coming from like Africa and the Middle East and Asia and India, these were all reduced down to being unscientific and barbaric. Mm. Um, and so what we see is two things. We see astrology go underground in the form of like esoteric magical traditions. Mm -hmm. We see the 17th century astrologers in England like Nicholas Culpepper and all of the folks in his time still writing stuff, you know, they were like, still kind of flourishing, but that was kind of the last holdout in the Western world at the time. Yeah. Um, a lot of astrology 
it just became, it just fell out of use. It got pushed out of our cultural understanding of the world. Um, and then it got rebranded into different things. So we see in like the late 1700s and the 1800s, these different you know, precursors to the new age movement start to try to regenerate and like re-enchant their European worldviews yes. with more psychological yeah. precepts. Yeah, like the theosophy and spiritualist movements. So they rebranded things like temperament, which was historically linked to the Greco-Arabic humoral tradition and then grafted onto medical astrology later. Like Carl Jung takes temperament and turns it into his personality types. Mm-hmm. You know, Steiner starts talk in the 1900s is talking about all of these different astrological, um, agricultural type of things. And that was in the astrology from before. Like these guys didn't really create anything new. They just <laughs> kept the traditional astrological language alive in a different and kind of appropriated way. Yeah. So and- modern astrology came from that. It came from this, the world became disenchanted because of European imperialism, Christian hegemony and white supremacy. And then some folks were like, this sucks. We would like the world to be enchanted again. And so they started to kind of recreate um, a new language. There was also a lack of access to the old texts. So a lot of these folks in the 1800s did not have these traditional astrological texts because they weren't translated into English and things like that, or hiding away at universities. Then of course we have the discovery of like the outer planets. And so folks start making associations with that for, for those planets. But modern astrology is extremely young in the shadow of a 3000 year old tradition. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Like the way I look at, you know, European history in a certain way is like all through the dark ages is just this fringe of Western Asia. It's not even really a continent, you know, it's a subcontinent and it kind of like over a certain, you know, the colonialism was the barbarian. I mean, they were the barbarians to India and China and Japan, like, but there's this projection thing where like then the Europeans are looking at everyone else and seeing them as barbarians when actually it's the other way around. Yeah. I mean, well, Europeans definitely have their own experience of like folklore and tradition and spiritual practice and things. If we're looking at like the history of the desacralization of the West, you know, we're going back to Roman conquest. Sure. Yeah. So like the indigenous peoples of Europe, have been getting screwed over for a really, really long time to the point that now for a lot of different populations, their historic, like their historic spiritualism is Christianity, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But someone like me, who's first generation American, you know, my mom immigrated to this country like four years before I was born. I was the first person in my family to be born in a Western context. Um, you know, we never stopped connecting our earthly experience with things that were greater than us. We never separated the traditions of healing from spirituality and religion. Um, So non-white people still have a very intact tradition of whether it's astrology or their own form of um, like, or Western astrology versus their own form of like star cosmology or, you know, 
traditional modes of kind of religious healing practices and things like that. Like all other cultures have really retained this, but we see this struggle in the history of Western Europe um, or just like the West in general, Europe in general, general, where they've lost those traditions. And so either they made something up that was new or they appropriated stuff from other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I mean, there, there was some passed down through these esoteric traditions, but it was so underground. Well, and so much of the esoteric lineage is coming from, you know, the Hellenistic era and like Egypt and stuff. So what does that have to do with a new like cult of belief in Britain? I don't know, but people definitely claim those lineages as their own. Yeah. So um, I guess we should start talking, get into like maybe temperament and like, what is temperament? How can you look at someone's chart and tell what is out of balance in them? Temperament is something that is used both in medical astrology, but it's used in a non-astrological context as well. So temperament is kind of our Western herbalism and Greco-Arabic humoral understanding of constitution. So it's our constitutional system, just like Ayurveda has doshas and I'm actually not sure what the Chinese medicine constitutional system is because I haven't studied it, but pretty much every herbal tradition everywhere has created some type of framework for understanding underlying patterns of imbalance in people related to a constitutional framework. Um, So temperament is based on humoral medicine. And so we're looking at like Galenic medicine and Hippocratic medicine, where the temperaments are being connected to humors. And then they're also being connected to the elements. And then they're also being connected to the qualities. So this is all coming from kind of a Aristotle, Plato era cosmology of the structure of the world. So when we're thinking about like the four elements, this wasn't, we see it in astrology now, right? We see like the elements corresponding to signs and the elements corresponding to planetary influences, but these were actually grafted onto medical astrology much later. They come from a original medicinal tradition and like, I'm pretty sure Galen was not stoked on astrology even. So he, he did not advocate for the use of charts, like uh, natal charts to understand some, someone's temperament. This is something that really came up in the medieval and Renaissance astrology tradition. Okay. But this sort of thing is used, for instance, in Ayurveda, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, Ayurveda has a very different and very strong medical astrology tradition that absolutely fascinates me, but I haven't studied a ton. So I don't, I can't really speak to the way in which they calculate temperament, but with temperament, you know, from my understanding, the medieval astrologers and the Renaissance astrologers who were using temperament, um, like were, who were calculating temperament through the chart, they were primarily using it for people that just showed up at their office that day. So someone comes to you and they're really sick and you don't know anything about them. Like you've never met them. They don't live in your village. You don't know where they live, what their family's like, what they're eating. And you're like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I can see that this person is experiencing like an imbalance of heat. Um, I can see that they're inflamed, uh, but I don't know what their constitution is because I haven't seen them when they're well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they would pull the chart and be like, okay, well, it seems like what I'm seeing here based on my calculations, and there are many different calculations for temperament. Um, most folks tend to use William Lilly's, but they calculate the temperament, 
and be like, okay, I know you are a sanguine person. So you're of the air temperament. You're experiencing a lot of heat and moisture. That's an excess of your temperament. I'm going to give you something that is antipathic to that to help bring you back into a balanced state of heat and moisture rather than an excessive. So they would use the chart as like a added on diagnostic tool. Um, but most herbalists, astrologers, folks who've been practicing in an energetic paradigm, you can look at someone and figure out their temperament. You don't need a chart. Yeah. It's almost an intuitive thing. You just, you can kind of tell, especially if you've looked at enough people and seen, you know, seen how these sort of things, you know, manifest. Yeah, definitely. What the chart is so helpful for though, is like, you know, in Ayurveda, they have, um, you know, your Vikruti and your Prakruti, like the temperament you were born with and the temperament you've assumed based on environmental conditions, mm -hmm. like the way you're living your life and things like that. We don't have that in the quote unquote Western herbal paradigm. We just have an understanding of like tissue states. And so the chart can be a really lovely way to see someone's inherent temperament and then also what their temperament is now because of external influences. Very useful. Yeah. So that's very useful. But like I said, there's no one like agreed upon way to calculate temperament from a chart. So you, I don't believe that you can reliably just use a chart. You have to lean on your clinical skills. You have to lean on your understanding of that person and like what's going on with them, because you might see something show up in an astrological chart that is like, there's a potential for something to occur, but if the right circumstances aren't activating that potential, it might be totally useless information for you in that moment. Mm -hmm. So how has having this astrological understanding of an individual's chart affected your practice as an herbalist? So like I said, I tend to use it, I, I see it as like extra confirming information. So mm -hmm. as an herbalist who is astrologically inclined, you know, whenever I'm doing an intake for a person, I'll really root into the, everything they shared with me on their form and make my notes of like the ideas that I have. And then I will look at their chart for secondary confirmation mm -hmm. or for like specific areas. So let's say I have someone in my practice who notes on their intake form that they really struggle with um, their relationship with food or like how they nourish themselves. Like nourishment is not a concept that they really connect with. I might look to their moon sign and anything that's going on with their moon or their progressed moon um, to see how I can best tailor my language to support them as they cultivate a nourishment practice. Um, so I also use astrology just to help me understand someone and help me understand how to best support them in our work together. Yeah, that makes sense. What does it actually look like? Um, are you using horary charts? Like how does this actually look as a medical astrologer? Well, so in medical astrology, you know, there's three branches of astrology that's coming together for traditional medical astrology. We've got natal astrology. So looking at their actual chart from the time they were born. Um, we have horary astrology and we have electional astrology. So horary astrology is more about, uh, it's not something I really practice, but you know, if we're looking at like a decumbiture chart, which is the chart uh, of the moment that someone took to their bed, you know, we're looking at like the moment that they came down with the illness, that's going to give us information about the influences at that time and how to support that. 
while an electional chart would tell us more about like timing, you know, electional charts in medical astrology were often used for understanding critical, critical days for like fevers and stuff. So it can be helpful to understand how someone might respond to a regimen or like when to time giving them specific things. Mm. But really for me, I, I will pull a decumbiture chart if I absolutely have to. But a lot of the clients that I'm working with aren't coming down with some, an acute illness. They're mm. struggling with chronic stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's less helpful unless I have like the exact time in their life that they knew that they got sick, but that might be 10, 15 years ago. Right. So I look more at like transits and um, use timing techniques like perfections and progressions. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's really, it's all really interesting how it all fits together. Um, so how do the, how do the plants fit together with this? Do you um, use, do you, use plants based on their, you know, astrological correspondences to like, yeah. So how do you, how do you, how do you use the astrological correspondences in your, in your herbalism and, in, in uh, using plants? Yeah. So when I'm working with clients, you know, we all know that like, I'm sure that, you know, people in your life who you're like, oh, that's totally a Yarrow person. And that's totally like a Hawthorne person. And, oh, they're like Lobelia, like they need Lobelia. We see plants and people. Mm-hmm. So when, when I'm doing an intake or I'm interfacing with a person, I'll be jotting notes in the sides of a plant that popped up in my head. You know, if I'm like, oh, they just sound like they need this plant or this plant would be really supportive for them. So I end up creating like a list of a bunch of potential plants for them. And then I'll cross check that list with their chart and with all the information they shared with me. And so I'll also look at placements in their chart and like difficult, you know, pain points. Um, beneficial points. So like places where they have great opportunity for healing and like strengths in their chart. And I'll think about ways to help them connect with that part of them so they can like as a protective factor for caring for their health. And so I'll make a list of different herbs that are most indicated for them with what they're experiencing, but that also kind of correspond to their astrological imprint. And I'll use that as a way to describe how, like, why I am giving this client particular herbs, help them understand those herbs on not just a physical perspective of how they're supporting their symptoms, but also how they're supporting their like spiritual and experience, you know, here as a human on the earth. Um, and I'll use that in my formulation strategies. So it really just ends up being this gorgeous, very connective way of helping people understand the plants that they're working with and understand how they can build relationships with that plants, with those plants. Um, cause a lot of the plants that I work with are plants that are really easily accessible or that grow around people. So if I am telling someone that, you know, they're a yarrow person, maybe they'll consider going to the um, nursery and picking up some yarrow so that not only they can work with that plant um, in their herbal formulas, but they can also like witness it growing, build a relationship with that plant and connect to it in a deeper way. Yeah. I think that's a really, that's really good for people. I've found, you know, when I'm actually interacting with the plant as a person, as a being, instead of just like a dried, you know, substance, (laughs) there's such a big difference. Oh, for sure. I mean, as herbalists, you know, we know we can support people's symptoms and things, but the real core of this work is helping people. It's, it's re-enchanting the world, you know, it's helping people connect with the natural world around them and like realize that we do have so much support. 
Um, but also this is me and my own chart coming through, you know, I have an exalted Venus in Pisces <clears throat> trying my Jupiter. Um, I am like big, big picture. I want everyone to be in relationship with the world. I'm an animist. Like yeah. this is just the way I operate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even going back to your plantain story of your youth of like connecting with the plant that way and making that connection between plantain and something that you're um, medical practitioner was prescribing you. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. So how, how do you, um, you know, have reciprocal relationship with plants? How do you connect with them in a way that is good for yourself or your client as well as the plant? Yeah. I love this question. And it's such a like core part of my work to the point that in the context of astrological herbalism, I've created a whole course about animist relationship building with plants and planets called Celestia Natura. Um, but yeah, I mean, the ways that we build relationships is going to be different for every person. Like, how do you like to make new friends? Mm-hmm. This is always the first question I ask people when they're like, but how do I do the relating? Because it can be really, <laughs> people here like get into relationship and it just sounds too ethereal. It just goes over people's heads. Mm-hmm. So my first question for people is like, how do you like to make new friends? Do you like to go to a party and be surrounded by a bunch of like jubilant voices? Do you like one-on-one hangs deep, like 2 a.m. hanging out, listening to um, music and chatting with someone on like a deep soul level? Like what do you need to feel nourished in relationships that you have with people? I love that question. And then if we consider that plants are people, like plants are people too. Yeah. And which is an animist way of viewing plants and other beings in the world. If plants are people too, well, how can I build relationships with them? Like I would build relationships with other people. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm thinking of, um, yeah, listening because how do you make a new friend if you're not like listening to their story and who they are, where they came from and maybe also sharing food because Isaac and I are both very food motivated people, <laughs> you know, yeah, no, a lot of cancer. In our yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. yeah. I mean, like, what do you do when a friend is struggling with something, something you bring them a meal? Absolutely. So yes. maybe you're bringing your plants fertilizer or yeah. you're watering them and saying yeah. like, hi, I just want to give you this gift. Yeah. I don't expect anything in return. Yeah. Because this is about reciprocity, not extraction. Yeah. Yeah. But have this glass of water friend. You know, <laughs> so that's like one way of getting into relationship with plants. The other way is just literally saying hi on a regular basis. And you can do yeah. this with planets too. Like mm. right now at this moment that we're recording this, we mm. are so blessed that you can see Saturn, Jupiter, Venus, and the moon like all together right now. They've been really putting on a show this week. And mm. so part of my like planetary relationship practice is just going out and saying like, good evening, Jupiter. Mm. good to see you nice yeah I'm so happy you're there you know it's a gratitude practice mm-hmm. yeah it seems like astrology can often be just so abstract and it's just oh, it totally is and it's partially because we have super sophisticated software which is so great yeah. like don't get me wrong I love looking at astro gold all day I don't want to hand calculate <laughs> anything when it comes to astrology But uh, this also brings up the concept of like, who gets to be an astrologer? Who gets to be an herbalist? If you stand outside at night and look up at the stars and wonder and are curious about what it all means, if you like 
pay attention to where the moon is and what sign it's in. If you're curious about the sun's, you know, solar seasons throughout all 12 zodiacal signs of the year, like congrats, you're doing astrology. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) If you plant herbs in your garden, if you make lavender tea before bed, if you um, love to adorn yourself in rose perfume because it helps you feel buoyant and connected with the world. Like you're doing herbalism. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't have to be super complicated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Though it does take a lot of time and effort to become expert in these things. Too. Well, and I don't think we can ever really achieve expert yeah. status either. Yeah. You know, I think it's yeah. a perpetual lifelong journey and like commitment and devotion um, to being students of the plants or the stars or whatever beings you're wanting to be in relationship with. Now, of course, if you're going to like practice herbalism and help people and work with, you know, significant ailments, like, yeah, be responsible, mm-hmm. go yeah. read books. The practice of herbalism and the practice of astrology are both inherently supported and nourished by intellectual foundations and embodied experience. Yeah. But I, re- I really like you taking it down to that simple, practical thing of just looking at the planets and looking, and relating to the plants. Like, yeah, anyone can can do it, can do yeah. that. I mean, all of the seven traditional planets are visible with your naked eye, even if you're in New York City. Hmm. So no matter where you are, you can see them. I mean, if you have like, like you can't really see Mars right now because it's, too low in the sky. So, you know, you're not going to see it if you've got trees around you and stuff like that. Um, but looking at charts is super cool, but it's literally just a handheld view of what's happening in the sky right now. Mm-hmm. So I love like holding a chart open while we're looking at the night sky and being like, Hey, and there's this planet that we see here. There it is in the sky. It's in this constellation. Like it's in this sign right now. It's in this house right now. And like looking at the divisions of the sky in real time, because we so often with both astrology and herbalism, we just get tied to our books. Yeah. And then we never go out and like do the thing. Hmm. Yeah. An accumulation of knowledge is powerful. But as we all know, you really get to know a plant when you spend time with them and you take them and you taste them and you smell them and you feel them in your hands, not just like when you read about them in a book. Right. Yeah. Interacting at that deep level. Mm -hmm. So speaking of, you know, the plants and the planets, this kind of brings us to correspondences. And when you read old texts like Culpepper, Cunningham. Well, that's um, not old. (laughs) we have we have scott conicom's encyclopedia of magical herbs here because it's i mean oh that book but it's like yeah there's like contradicting statements is my point is that and they don't explain the why yeah yeah so how do you come up with planetary correspondences as an astro herbalist like how do you look at a plant and talk with a plant and figure out what planet it might be aligned with Yeah. So it's an understanding of both intellectual and embodied knowing, just like I was saying before, Mm -hmm. but this whole issue with correspondences that we have in the old text, like it's super frustrating to read Culpepper or to read these Cunningham books because like with Scott Cunningham, for example, he'll list planetary associations with like half the plants in the book and then not for the other ones. So it becomes really apparent that he took information from pre-existing texts 
but didn't have an understanding of how to build those connections. Otherwise he would have done it for all of the plants, right? Yeah, I don't even know if he like cites his references. Oh, he doesn't cite anything. We've got ba- a bad case of historical uh, no citing throughout all of his <laughs> you know, like Even Ptolemy. So Ptolemy's works um, are some of the most foundational in the astrological tra- tradition. Like understanding his texts are super important for understanding Hellenistic astrology. But Ptolemy wasn't an astrologer. So what does that tell us about what he was writing about? It's likely that he was basically articulating the belief at the time. Did he come up with that stuff? Probably not. It's probably like all the folks around him who were talking about it and he just got credit for it because we only remember, you know, dudes in history. Naturally. So a lot of our astrological herbal correspondences come from pre-existing texts that were likely a synthesis of, you know, Culpepper being like, hey, physician down the road, what do you think? Oh, that's interesting. I think it this way. And they didn't cite like their reasoning behind it. And we even see that all the way back to like Al Biruni's work and in the Picatrix, Mm -hmm. which is a, you know, famous Arabic grimoire of astrological magic where they talk about all of these correspondences, but we know for a fact that the Picatrix is a accumulation of many, like a synthesis of works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the trouble with making correspondences is no one or very few people like Joseph Blagrave, who was a Culpepper era guy. I think he published his text like two years after Culpepper published his herbal, but he wrote a little bit of the reasoning why uh, for correspondences. And it seems like at that time, a lot of the correspondences were being rooted in um, energetics. So it was like, if this plant is excessively heating and drying, it's automatically under the dominion of Mars because Mars is heating and drying. If this plant is cooling and drying and astringent, it's Saturnian. But this is a very one-dimensional view of how plants interact with our, like, with our bodies, with the world, etc. Um, and it doesn't explain, well, but why is Mars hot and dry? <laughs> why is Saturn cold, dry, and constricting? What does this even mean? And so the whole concept of um, plant and planet rulership is rooted in the golden chain of being, or it's also called like the celestial spheres or the great chain of being, which is this thing put out at the time of Aristotle. Um, Like it's a vision of the cosmological like structure of the world where there are different spheres. So there's like the outermost sphere, which is the fixed stars and the constellations they create. And then the next spheres are key to the planets. So there's like Saturn sphere, Jupiter sphere, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, the moon, and Earth is at the center. Mm. And so this structure is describing like a hierarchy of influence that the celestial spheres have on Earth. And the idea at the time was that the, it, it was unidirectional. Like the planets were influencing Earth through the spheres um, and kind of imbuing the spheres with their energetics and the elements. So Saturn being the farthest from earth was seen to be cold, Mm -hmm. you know, while, and like things start to change in terms of their energetic associations as we get closer and closer. So all of the matter in our sublunar realm, which is the like terrestrial sphere is at this point, because of this sphere of influence from the other planets, we see the four elements, 
um, and the four qualities of hot, cold, wet, and dry in our earthly experience. And so it's also believed that through this chain of being, these planets are influencing the things that we see here on earth from like stones to minerals and gems and metals and trees and plants and herbs and flowers and our bodies and everything that exists here. Mm. So in order to understand planetary correspondence, we have to understand that this is like a cosmological way of seeing the world. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's not as simple as like, well, Venus corresponds to the urinary system and this plant works on the urinary system. So it's Venusian. Hmm. That's a really reductive way of seeing plants or planets. Yeah. Or even like this plant is beautiful and Venus rules beauty. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Right. So when we're thinking about planetary correspondence, we're understanding like what's up with that plant? Where does it grow? What is, where does it like to grow? How does it grow? What does it look like? What do its flowers look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What are the actions it has on our human bodies? What other relationships do they build with plants around them and animals around them? What's the folklore? Yeah. What's mm -hmm. the magical uses? What are like historical and cultural associations um, then what do I experience when I engage with this plant? What's my embodied understanding of them? And when we look at all of that, that's a lot of information to gather. When we look at all of that information, then we can start to see which planet is most responsible for that plant. Because Venus is going to show up in every flower. Saturn is going to show up in every bark pattern. Mars is going to show up in everything that has thorns. The sun is going to show up in everything because all green life needs sunlight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so we could see the planets in literally everything around us because they yeah. all represent different aspects and different archetypes. But the question about correspondence is who's the most responsible. Mm -hmm. And so can this, so for certain plants, there might be multiple. So for lemon balm, for instance, you know, we've got Jupiter and the moon. Um, but so people might have a chart where like you have the ruler of the ascendant is uh, the moon because it's cancer, mm -hmm. but you have Jupiter on the ascendant. And then maybe you have the Almutin of, of cancer is a different planet. I, I would have to like, look up to see if you, if that can. The Almutin of the chart. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So how do you, what if there are like multiple rulers? Is it, can can like planets share uh rulership yeah i mean definitely we definitely see plants that seem kind of confusing and ambiguous in their rulership and one theory that my partner diana and i have about confusing planetary rulership is what if certain plants are actually key to fix stars rather than planets ah. but that's like a huge theory that we need to spend a lot of time diving into and i'm gonna have to read a lot of like old scholarly articles about Babylonian um, astro medicine because they really worked with fixed stars. So it's yeah. not as like, there isn't as consistent of a through line with fixed stars in the West, quote unquote, Western astrological tradition. But that's something that I'm curious about. Yeah. That'd be um, and, but yeah, plants can definitely have multiple planetary rulers and we often see a relationship. So for example, you know, lemon balm, it's not my best one, but if we're thinking about it being moon Jupiter, actually, I just want to double check this really quickly. Um, 
you know, cancer is ruled by the moon, but Jupiter is also exalted in cancer, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm so bad at memorizing my essential dignity tables. Um, Jupiter is exalted in cancer. So Jupiter is extra resourced in cancer. Jupiter is getting extra support from the lunar nature of cancer to do its Jupiterian things. Does it make sense for then lemon balm to be an exalted Jupiter and cancer plant? Or if we were to think about lemon balm, if lemon balm had a birth chart, maybe lemon balm's birth chart is literally Jupiter on the ascendant in cancer. Yeah. And that's what lemon balm is most keyed to. When we consider the ways in which lemon balm works in the body, you know, we have a lot of different things, but some of the main things people think about with lemon balm is that it's an aromatic nervine. So it's thereby going to be a carminative. It's going to support the digestive system, which is ruled by cancer. Mm. Yeah. But then lemon balm has some other really life-giving qualities in its ability to support like the immune system, but also to support detoxification, which is a Jupiterian thing. Like Jupiterian plants are abundantly life-giving. They promote good health. And we also see this Jupiterian signature with lemon balm where lemon balm is just like a pretty, it's not, I mean, pardon my word here, jovial (laughs) plant. It it like promotes bubbliness and exuberance and this like deep belly laughter of joy, which is Jupiter. Mm. Yes, it does. (laughs) So my other question with this too is, would it depend also on like what you're using the plant for, what part of the plant you're using mm-hmm. and when you pick the plant? Cause like if you picked um, like the leaves of lemon balm on the hour of the moon on a Monday, would that be, and you used it, you know, as a tea, would that be more of a moon way of using it? Yeah. In that way, you're really focusing your intention to connect with its lunar qualities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's not that you're totally not going to get any of the other benefits of lemon balm, but what is the intention you're bringing to the table with that particular experience? And this is where you're starting to look at electional astrology for creating talismanic type of materia. Mm. So in astro herbalism, a lot of the historical uses and like literature around astro herbalism is talking about timing of when to harvest and prepare plants. Right. You know, you'll see like old texts that's just talking about like to make this amulet or some something harvested on Venus's day and Jupiter's hour, which makes sense because you're trying to create something that's like beautiful and positive and supportive for someone in this particular example. But a lot of the texts will talk about that. It's assuming that plants are going to be most efficacious and potent when they are being harvested at times that are keyed to their planetary um, rulers. Is that part of your herbal practice too? If you're harvesting medicine for tea or tinctures? It's what I, I try to keep it in mind. Mm-hmm. Like I try to do planetary hours and days, but I don't do full blown electional work with my um, astro herbal preparations because you don't necessarily have to. Like yeah. calculating an electional chart for our preparation is really necessary for creating a astro magical like remediation type of talismanic materia and there are folks who excel in that like caitlin Kopik at sphere and sundry is doing that in the best way i've ever seen in my life i am currently wearing for venus and pisces materia for this conversation oh Oh, so cool (laughs) (laughs) but 
that's more of like a astro magical remediation type of thing. You don't right. need it to make good potent herbal extracts. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I try to consider like moon phase, moon, yeah. moon sign, whether it's waxing or waning, what the intention of the preparation is going to be. But like, if you make, like, let's say you want to make a nettle tincture or something. If you make a nettle tincture on Mars day in Mars hour, while Mars is in Aries or something like I did last year, you're going to end up in the situation that I was in, which was having a full blown like ocular migraine for three days, feeling like my head was going to explode. So you can get a little too much oh, wow. uh, planetary yeah. connection um, by attuning to these tiny mechanisms in a really strict way. You're saying that you got a migraine after you made that medicine? Yeah. And wow. when I take it, I've, I've given it to other people and it's just like really intense. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, that also might depend on your like birth chart too. Oh yeah. Mars is, is in a extremely malefic position for me. So I'm already too Marshall. Gotcha. Right. Um, so like, that's not something I need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it would like, there's the idea in like astrological magic that you might not want to do a talisman for an afflicted planet because it yeah. can manifest in a Unhelpful. Well, and usually you don't want to do a talisman for the malefics yeah. in general, but even like right. working with too much solar materia can really burn people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, in all things, you can have too much of a good thing doing excess Venus stuff. You know, if we think about Venus being warm and moist and having governance for, um, you know, there's an association with Venus and like the digestive tract, as well as the urinary system, as well as the reproductive system. But if we think about warm moisture and excess relaxation in the, in like the urinary tract, you've got a really uncomfortable UTI, like a proliferation of bacteria. You can have too much Venus. Yeah. Yeah. Or like phlegm in the lungs that is going to cause like a serious bacterial infection, you know? Right. Or like dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like excess Venus thing. Interesting. So the malefic planets are only malefic because we experience their energetics and the experiences of, you know, so Mars is excessively hot and dry. Mm-hmm. Excessive heat and dryness is antithetical to life. You go into an area, like you look at soil that has been excessively exposed to hot and dry conditions and it has separated and cracked and there is no life growing in it. Yeah. Because we as humans need like moisture and a temper, like a temperament experience or temperate experience. Mars is just too much for us. Saturn is the opposite. It's excessively cold and dry. Well, frozen areas have very little life either. Right. Yeah, or outer space. Like yeah. That. Right. So it's not that these planets are like awful and want to ruin our lives or anything. They're just a different flavor of experience that may not be the most comfortable for what we need on a daily basis to like maintain a sense of balance. They're extreme. Right. But yeah, it's all about homeostasis, maintaining, you know, balance. Equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we think about like, like a Marshall plant, for example, you know, nettles is a classically like Mars and Aries kind of plant. And we all know how fortifying and supportive nettle can be, but we also know how sharp its sting is. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so if we're thinking about connecting to Mars through nettle, we have to understand the wholeness of Mars. It's not all bad. 
Yeah. yeah. And speaking of Marshall plants, um, you mentioned before we hit record for the show today that Hawthorne is another plant associated with Mars. Um, could you tell us why that is? Yeah, and so folks will really struggle with Hawthorne. It's often a plant that comes up in my classes where people are like, I can't figure it out. Yeah. So this is where we get to see a different aspect of astrology come through in our herbal, herbal correspondences. Well, that's the end of part one. And if you'd like to listen to part two, then go to patreon.com slash plantcunning.